0: Hello everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome. Um, Thank you everybody for joining today's event, Uh, Be Brown and Be Proud with Dr. Lizeth Gutierrez. Uh, My name is Afaf Aldelay. I am the Campus Programming Coordinator and I have had the privilege and the pleasure of chairing this year's Hispanic Heritage Month uh, Planning Committee. So I want to thank the committee um, for everything that they've done and all of their hard work and leadership to help organize um, all of these events that we've had. We've had a a full month of amazing events, um, which has been, Uh, a new field for us in this virtual world, but, you know, we, we, we tried to do it and um, I really am am thankful for everybody that's been attending and all of the good feedback that we've been receiving. Um, We've had a whole month of cultural, social, and educational programs. Um, And so um, I would also like to thank uh, Dr. Jorge Monaga for um, his leadership in coordinating this event and, um, you know, I'm really excited for this event last year and in the beginning of this year, we've discussed um, verbiage and, you know, what we should call this month, Hispanic Heritage Month, should we change it? And so this event is really going to help us um, steer that decision um, and hopefully, you know, have more um, inclusive verbiage in our Um, events and whatnot, so uh, we really look forward to this discussion to educate us uh, more on the power of using and embracing terms, so now I would like to introduce our moderator for the night, Dr. Gladys Gillum, um, and she will be introducing our speaker, but before that um, Dr. Gladys Gillum. Um, Gillam is a lecturer in the Department of Modern Literature and Languages. Uh, She earned a BA degree in Spanish literature and her master's in education and Spanish literature, both from CSU Northridge. Afterwards, she served as a K through 12 educator for more than 17 years across the San Fernando Valley. During her tenure, she taught various levels of Spanish, developed curriculum for AP Spanish literature and AP Um, Spanish language and served as a department chair, bilingual coordinator, and biliterary coordinator. She continues to serve as an AP Spanish literature reader and writes testing items for SAT uh, Spanish exams. Recently in the summer of 2019, uh, Gladys Gillen became one of the graduating students from CSUB's first doctor of education cohort, um, defending her dissertation titled Teaching Residency Programs as a New Pathway to teacher preparation for high need schools under the mentorship of Dr. John Stark and Randolph Schultz. As a full-time lecturer, Dr. Gillum teaches courses in Spanish and French as a second language and also teaches methods for second language instruction. Currently, Dr. Gillum is working on creating new courses such as Central American Literature and revising chapters of their dissertation for potential peer-reviewed publications. So without further ado, um, the floor is yours, Dr. Gillum, and thank you.
1: Well, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to participate in this uh, wonderful celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month. So I'm very excited to be here today with you. Um, And also, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce our guest speaker today. But before doing so, I would like to share a little bit about her before um, our wonderful presentation. So she is the Assistant Director and Director of Admissions at Hillside Student Community School. She was the first Grinnell College Mellon Mays Undergraduate Fellowship Fellow, graduating with a doctorate in American Studies from Washington State University. Much of her research interest includes, but is not limited to Chicana feminism, queer of color critique, Latinx studies, and political economy immigration. She has also explored and published on various topics, for example, Queering Chisme, where she redefines the emotional security of Josefina Lopez's film, Real Women Have Curves. Also, the Spiritual Mestizaje, where she examines or uh, explores on religion, gender, race, and nation in contemporary Chicana narrative also on the femininity through the Chola politics and published an article um, on the focus on the, um, on the late Gloria Saldua, who was the driving force um, in the chicano Chicano movement and the lesbian and queer theory. But her most recent research project titled Queer's Chisme and of course, Chisme roughly translates as gossip examines the spatial practice that harvests homosocial bonds between undocumented Mexican women. Her research not only challenges the traditional negative, rationalized, feminized uh, customs of chisme or gossiping, right? But in doing so, she establishes chisme as a site of queer of color historiography. So. We are so excited to have her here today, presenting on the topic of Be Brown, Be Proud, the Politics of Ethnic Terminology in the Latinx Community. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Lizeth Gutierrez.
2: Thank you so much, Gladys. That's a wonderful (laughs) introduction. Thank you. and you know, I also want to thank everyone else who has put this event together and has invited me to share um, some of my insights around this debate. Um, it's, it's a debate that's been happening for a while. Um, it kind of reinvents and resurfaces um, throughout the years. Uh, I think that one important thing that we're going to learn about today's um, conversation, today's platica, is that these terms are political because they are being politicized from the top down, but also from the bottom up, right? It's the communities that are also demanding for these terms to change, Mm -hmm. to be more inclusive, to address more um, experiences, right? So bring in the Afro-Latino experience, bring in the indigenous experience in the forefront. How do we um, also erase the Eurocentric narratives that are imposed by the government, by marketing, by advertising? on the Latino community. We're not just a culture, which is oftentimes the narrative around ethnicity, right? How are we also racialized? And where is this race conversation in the Latino community? So we will be talking a lot about the history of these terms, um, situating them in the relationship that these communities have had with US empire. Because in order for us to really understand the experiences of these communities in today's social political moment, we also have to understand how did these relationships come about? And what is the U.S. relationship with Latin America, right? So I've titled it Be Brown and Be Proud and it's in parentheses because this is a slogan that was used in the 1960s in the Chicano movement. And the 1960s, it was a time period where identity politics were center to their political agendas. And the reason why it's important to really think about the 1960s as a pivotal moment for identity politics is because it was also a time where strategic essentialism became part of the agenda. And by strategic essentialism, and I'll talk a little bit more about this as we go along, but strategic essentialism ultimately identifies certain characteristics within the community. Although it recognizes that Latin America is big, right? Its histories are diverse because there's so many different countries, right? So, but it identifies certain characteristics that they can use strategically to unite on on an agenda that seeks social justice. So in the 1960s, you had a variety of different communities of color organizing and and challenging the U.S. government to demand the civil rights of its people and to be specific to the, the ways in which injustice and inequality operates differently for these marginalized communities. What was happening for African-American communities was very different than what was was happening, for example, in California in the 1960s with the Latino community. And the agenda of immigration has also been different um, for these two communities. So it's really recognizing what are the specific agendas that these communities are demanding to exert in the public to the government? And why are those agendas important? And how does that narrative itself continue to affect political organizing today? Especially when we have, you know, unfortunate tragic events like the Orlando shooting in 2016 or the locking up of families and children in cages and the separation of families in the border or the continual suicide of trans women in the border as well. So it's really thinking about how do these events that affect the Latinx community as a whole also become important moments to really organize and demand much more from our government when it comes to creating not only visibility, but also equality for all, right? And, and that's the fight that we will continue to, to, to participate in as, as the years go on, right? Um, Jorge, if you wanna go ahead and move to the next slide. Thank you. So for today's plática, um, I want to talk a little bit about the historical genealogy of the terms Hispanic and Latino. The reason why I want to start with those terms, it's because these are pan-ethnic terms that have been used throughout. They have a history. And not only that, but it's important to really complicate the ways we use them, not only as terms to, you know, say, okay, this is the umbrella term for the community, but complicate what are the characteristics that make these terms um, consumable and who's consuming them and why, right? We'll talk about the limitations of Latinidad. And I think it's great because with social media, we've seen so many, Community. so many young um, kids questioning Latinidad. Um, Latinidad oftentimes is a term used and continues to be supported by the academics. But you have um, students and kids that are not part of this world that are saying, hold up, that doesn't fit with me. That category is not who I am. And I want to be more specific in how I identify. I am an Afro-Colombiana. I am an afro um New New York and like, you know, there's so many different terms. And I think the fact that people are questioning them and pushing back against the very terms that are also used politically to mobilize is important. Um, And then we'll talk about the debate um, around whether we use Latino, Latina or Latinx, right? Um, And what the limitations or the controversy around the term Latinx that we see today Um, from the linguistic side, from Latin Americans who are like, hold up, this term is just doesn't, it doesn't fit with me. It doesn't fit with the way I speak Spanish, Um, but also speaking about the ways in which that term itself was integrated in the discourse because younger generations are saying, we want an all-inclusive term that is gender neutral, that speaks to the diverse experiences of our community, right? We are not living our lives just as men and women. We are a variety of identities and that needs to be represented in terms that are all inclusive and umbrella terms as well. So we'll be talking about that. And then we'll summarize with some of the main things and um, hopefully get into a discussion at the end. One of the things that I want to emphasize in this conversation though, is that I'm not here to impose my views of terminology on you. I think it's important, however, to understand the historical context in which these terms arise, because they really illustrate um, the conversations of how problems that we see today, issues and struggles of power that we see today are not isolated. They are very much part of the trajectory of historical context of sociopolitical agendas of resisting the government and resisting the way the government imposes certain ideas of what your collective identity should be, right? So these agendas are important because remember, in if we look at these graphs, according to the census, by 2060, we will be A big part of this population, it is estimated that we will be 111.2 million part of this community. So that means that we have a lot of bargaining power. That means that we are also a community that people need to watch out when it comes to our vote. Right, who we put in office represents the types of agendas and values that we want in our government, and how do we want our government to reflect our values and our ideas and our um, in our needs? Right, our economic, socio-political needs. So we are a community that is threatening in many ways to oftentimes the white supremacist agendas of race of. Um, structural inequality and systemic racism. So we need to be heard, but also think about how does the government in using these types of terminologies to limit ourselves to just culture or to just language, right? When we think about certain terminology, how does that get in the way of our own racialized experience in the US, right? Because although the census may say that we're an ethnic group, we are racialized in very specific ways in this country. And, and I will talk about that in the next slide. Jorge, go ahead and move to the next slide. Thank you. So let's start with the term Hispanic. First and foremost, names are inherently political because they invoke specific genealogical narratives. So one of the things that Linda Alcoff argues um, when she really dissects these different terminologies. She says that we need to think about the ways Hispanic is marked by the colonial relation between Spain and Latin America, as opposed to Latino, which is marked by the colonial relation between the US and Latin America. So if we think about Hispanic, this was actually a term suggested by the King of Spain to the government of the United States, saying if you want an uninclusive term, think use the word Hispanic because of the His the Hispano, um, the way it's used in Latin America with Hispano or the His the peninsula, right? Um, and I want to really emphasize that this was a time where. There's lots of different migration coming from Latin America into the US. So, in the in 1965, the US government passed the Immigration and Nationality Act. And this basically removed previous quotas which increased immigration from these certain places, right? And when you have more migration coming into this country, of course, people are not just bringing their bodies, they're bringing also their culture, their language, their traditions, which is creating much more visibility in the public sector. So the government needed to figure out a way to count all these different communities that were emerging that have their own racial history, that have their own um, arrangements when it comes to their own societal traditions. So in many ways, in 1978, this is the government's way of trying to introduce a term that would collectively identify these set of people that were migrating in numbers, um, but they wanted to make sure that this was a non-racialized ethnic, ethnic, ethnic term. Why? Because the US, as you all probably know, has had a very different way of constructing race in this country in a way that it wanted to continue to preserve whiteness as the top racial category, blackness, um, indigenous, and Latin America has had a history of that mixture long before, right? So how do we continue to preserve the racial categories that we have politically and economically and socially constructed in this country and still speak to the fact that these people have a history of mixing that's very different, right? In in Mexico, for example, the caste system it's it's huge. In Brazil, the racial system, the different categories are long, as opposed to in the U.S., where we've had three, four, five categories. So it really challenged the way these different communities identified, and when they were coming in, um, they needed to be imposed. They Categories needed to impose a difference, but that was would that continue to affirm the racial caste system of the US. So it was defined as a non-racialized term. It was an ethnic term in many ways to center culture. And by culture, we're thinking about the different characteristics like language, right? So when we think about Hispanic and the way the government has defined Hispanic, it's oftentimes people who speak Spanish or of Spanish origin. Now, who does that exclude? It excludes Brazil, who that is in Latin America because they speak Portuguese, right? So a lot of people started to say, well, that doesn't really fit with me. And and second of all, people were questioning whether this category really addressed the complexities of its people because it was a government imposed term. So Latinos started circling around, especially in academic circles, because in many ways, it really spoke to the colonial relationship, like I mentioned, between Latin America and the U.S. And what Alcove says that I also agree with is that in order for us to understand these concepts and the way they function, we need to understand the roots of them. And Latinos don't have a relationship to Spain anymore right? We continue to have relationships with the U.S. And, and we have them in terms of the different types of U.S. imperialist agendas that are imposed on our Latin American people, which means that we are closer related to the agendas of the U.S. on the Latin American people as opposed to the U.S. imperial agendas on Spain. So the argument becomes, how do we make sure to really recognize those relationships? And the way they affect our lives today, because there's something to be said about bringing a collective identity and saying we're all the same because we share the same language, right? But if we focus on that characteristic, we're not gonna hold loyalty to our countries of origin, to the countries of our, of our people. So we are more likely to support militaristic agendas of the US imposing on Latin America and the Caribbean. We're more likely to be of supportive of these nationalist patriotic agendas because culture and the, the, the term Hispanic is very much about assimilationist agendas as opposed to Latinos saying, I'm a Latino here, and I'm reminded that I'm a second class citizen, citizen, but I also have a relationship or ties to Latin America. And this is very much seen to, for example, the fight for a lot of Latin Americans wanting to have their dual citizenship, right? There is this need also for undocumented people that come to the US or even, legalized immigrants that come to the U.S. that say, but I want to go back. I'm here fighting, providing for my family, but my goal one day is to go back a la tierra, a la isla, right? So there is this relationship to the, to to your home country, to the country of your parents, um, that is important for us to recognize because that relationship has very much, at least from the top down, has very much been calculated as, as a differentiation so that agendas of power can continue to say, well, if you go back or if you support those agendas, are you loyal to us? Are you loyal to our military? Are you loyal to our imperialist agendas for wanting to spread democracy, for wanting to help those countries that need our help so we can go invade, sell weapons, and create havoc in those countries in the name of you know, of democracy, right? And we've seen that historically, the way the US has sold weapons to support warfare in Latin America right to destabilize certain countries and ultimately um, destabilize the, the their governments so that they can spread democracy and continue to exploit the resources of those countries. We've seen it continuously so the question begun becomes where do we as Latinos want to position our own political agendas and how does terminology affect that dynamic and the U.S. census there was a lot of debate but they continue to stay with the 2010 Um, questionnaire, which is basically, um, you know, defining yourself for for Hispanic Latinos or people with Spanish origin as an ethnicity, right? And then if you look at question nine, define your race. Again, what are the categories? White, Black, African-American, American American Indian, Alaska Native, or um, these different categories, these different subcategories. And we've recently seen some other race right and this is because there's been a lot of pushback around these terms there's been a lot of pushback around the limitations of these terms because people don't always just ex- don't experience their life as for example an african american who their experience as a nigerian might be different that's why thinking about the black experience needs to be framed around the diaspora of the black experience because it's different but always in relation to the us and its relationship to those countries of origin and as you all know, there also is no citizenship question in the 2020 census, even though government was really pushing towards that question, but also activism, organizing pushed back and said no, because that is going to actually backfire in that people are not gonna want to participate in this questionnaire. They're not gonna want to expose their family and risk their families, um, again, illustrating The ways terminology is used from various sectors. Jorge, if we can go ahead and move to the next slide. Which brings the question of Latinidad, right? So we've talked about Hispanic and Latino, and we've talked about the ways, at least in this presentation, Hispanic is the we don't wanna use Hispanic, right? It's a problematic term, it's Eurocentric, it centers Spain, we don't have a relationship with Spain. So it's a term that it's not used by a lot of social political activists, not used in academia, but it's still used by the government, by the media, by advertisers, um, because it very much centers culture and culture is easy. Nobody wants to talk about the difficulties. Nobody wants to talk about oppression, right? People want to talk about the nice, let's celebrate, right? Let's celebrate Dolores Huerta, let's celebrate Cesar Chavez, the the minor faces here and there of Hispanic culture, Uh, the people that did it, the people that fought, but we don't really get to the gritty, the really messy and the continuous fights of these communities. So, um, which brings the question of Latinidad. And Latinidad, although like I mentioned, it is a term, created and supported by academics and also by the larger community in response to Hispanic, um, Latinidad also has its problems, right? Um, and this is very much seen by, I've seen a lot more of the pushback in, in like I mentioned, in the social media spheres, in, in social political activist groups, in, in nonprofit organizations who really are saying, you know, it's not just about um, this collective geopolitical experience that contains the complexities of immigration, colonialism, race, color, legal status, like all of that, if we look at the definition, that is huge, right? Like the complexities of immigration, well, there is complexities, but let's spell out those complexities, right? The reason why Puerto Ricans have citizenship and um, Mexicanos don't, or let's talk about the fact that Salvadorians have been granted TPSA, um, TPS asylum, but other communities have not, right? So these immigration experiences are important. It doesn't mean that some experiences, um, that some communities are better than others, but it does dictate the different experiences that affect how you move around this country, having citizenship, having permit, uh, a, a temporary permission to be here, um, having residency, and also living in the shadows, not having that permission. And 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 by permission, I want to complicate that because that in itself is just, you know, we're not asking the government for permission, but it's their terms of saying, you know, are you legally here? Um, are you allowed to be legally here, or are you creating? Uh, are you partaking in a federal crime by being here? Um, not legally, right? So it really, it, it doesn't capture all of those. And and again, when we talk about, and when we see Latinidad in the media, um, we are often seeing, the Eurocentric experiences of Latinidad. When in reality, um, our experiences are so diverse. Um, Rarely we talk about the Afro-Latino experience, or like I said, the indigenous experience of um, Latino America. Um, We've we've imagined it in in different types of political movements, the experiences of indigenous people as a way to create a collective and to challenge in many ways, the narrative of, of whiteness as superior, but we don't necessarily make space for those experiences today and saying, how do how do Afro-Latinos live in this country when they are perhaps racialized as black? People see them and they see them as Black, but they speak Spanish and they have different cultures and experiences to to Black people in the U.S. What about those experiences? Why don't we see those in telenovelas? Why don't we see those in the the news? Why don't we see that experience um, in other different sectors? So what you start to see is communities responding back and saying, that label doesn't fit me. That label doesn't speak to my experience. Where am I here, right? So we'll go to the next slide. So the, so what we start to see um, is that there is a huge denial for the complex cultural inheritance in that term. And I love this image, and this is by um, found in Dichos de un Dicho. And it says Latinidad in the United States. It's like throwing all the diversity of Latin American into a blender and making brown licuado that's easier for white people to digest. And I really want you to think about that because, and it happens all the time, right? In the ways in which we see our, our Latino experience reflected in the media, it's oftentimes this very palatable, consumable, non-threatening, let's celebrate all the goodness of Latinos, instead of really acknowledging the fact that our experiences are diverse, that our experiences are complex. Like, I am so tired of people saying that Mexico is a fucking, like, it's a fucking continent, right? Mexicanos are different from salvadoreños, salvadoreños are different from brasileños, like, we're all different, and yet we all sometimes get labeled under Mexico and how much does that happen with white people right so it's really thinking about how do we complicate these these terms to really be reflective of the people that it seeks to represent and I think that's the great thing about these ethnic terminologies that are that they are reflective of the constant power struggle that happens in government and systems trying to impose these labels on people, but also people resisting and people fighting to define themselves. And I think that's what's key here. We as Latinos are not passive. We're not just allowing people to impose these terminologies on us. We're constantly pushing back. We're constantly wanting our government our advertising agencies, the media to reflect who we are, to really show, to really say, this is who we are and we want you to define us this way. So what we start to see, for example, I don't know if all of you have seen the hashtag Latinidad is canceled and it's basically, oh, virtual online movement i think i believe it started in twitter but we've seen it in this hashtag we can see in different spaces in, in the social media realm where really it's about canceling this this idea of um eurocentric culture inheritance right let's for like let's not forget but let's not celebrate The fact that we're related to Spain. All right. Because that's not all we are. All right. We need to stop with this whole whiteness. That's basically what the hashtag is about. It's saying, let's look at the Afro, the Afro Latino experience. What is my experience as a black Latina is very different than what you see in the media, than what you associate as the, um, the Jennifer Lopez or the Sofia Vergara or the Salma Hayek or the Penelope Cruz, like which these white Eurocentric Latinas that are sexualizing the image of, you know, whiteness in the Latino community, like colorism is real in our community. So Latinidad is canceled very much speaks to that pushback, speaks to wanting, speaks to that experience, wanting to take back the term and make it more reflective of our complex identities. Um, And it evades the race question. It evades the fact that we are a racialized community. Um, So basically, I I guess the purpose of this is saying that the purpose of this slide, the purpose of this conversation is to really say that we need to think critically about how these terms are not only imposed on us, but also how are we responding? How are we pushing back? And also how are we choosing to define ourselves? We We have that freedom. Um, yeah, so next slide. (laughs) So what about the Latinx term, right? So Latinidad is a problem. So, so what do we do then? Do we use Latino? Do we use Latinx? Is Latinx something that I should still use then? The question is up in the air. (laughs) So the reason why we start to see, especially in 2015, 16, this term Latinx, it's because there was a fight towards really speaking to the LGBTQ experience, an experience that oftentimes in Latino cultures is invisibilized. it's ignored. Um, For our own histories of patriarchy and and masculinity and machismo in, in those communities, right? So there was a fight from the activist community to really speak to the centering of communities that are constantly ignored. So how do we center them by really invoking a terminology that makes it difficult to even pronounce right? Because if we invoke that difficultness, you the fact that you're made to feel uncomfortable speaks to the fact that you're rarely that you're rarely uncomfortable in the society that you live in. Where as opposed to those people in that community are constantly reminded that they are on the margins, that they are oppressed, that, they, that their needs are invisible, right? So Latinx very much speaks to really challenging this dichotomy between in, in, the, in, the, in the Spanish language of male-female and really centering a gender-neutral term that not only moves beyond the masculine-centric Latino, but is an all-inclusive term for all genders. Um, and, and it really speaks to the degenderization of Spanish. And there's a lot of pushback, especially from linguists who say, well, this terminology is difficult to pronounce. It's incorrect in its grammatical construction. So how are we using something that is, you know, oftentimes like impossible to even use in our own dialect? And, and although it's an important critique, if we think about, for example, Gloria Anzaldua and her work on how to tame the wild tongue, speaking about the politics of Spanglish, the politics of bringing in different languages to really speak to her experience as a Chicana who has roots in indigenous communities, who has her roots in Mexico, in the frontera in English and creating her own hybrid language to make sense of the world. That's what Latinx represents, It's, it's a voice. that that addresses the complexities of living multiple identities and making sure that those identities are at the forefront. So it's a politicized term that really seeks to say, we're here, we're not invisible. And we've been fighting for our rights, for our visibility for a while. Take a look at Sylvia Rivera. She she was a trans woman that was fighting in the Stonewall riots in New York for the rights of trans women so that they weren't continuously and systematically murdered. And she has a, she has had a pivotal role in the LGBTQ rights and continues to have these rights, this these impact, I'm sorry, in today's society, especially in the mobilizing of LGBT agendas today. So really Latinx is is a political term saying we're here, we've been here, we've always been here. And the fact that you're uncomfortable with this terminology speaks to the fact that you, your experience perhaps has been very different. So how do you wanna join us in fighting for our rights to make everyone in this community equal, right? Now we've seen these terms change throughout. We started also to see um, Latine or Latine. um, And these are oftentimes propositions in relation to Latinx saying, you know, because Latinx is difficult to pronounce, I just don't get it. And, um, you know, it's linguistically wrong, we should use something that's a little bit more linguistically friendly, which we've seen these terminologies used. And they're used by different communities, especially marginalized communities as well, which again, it speaks to conversations, the different communities within having these conversations. And that's the purpose of this talk. The purpose is to really illustrate that There is no definite correct answer. Terms are reflective of where we are in society. This conversation was not happening in the 2000s, in the 1980s. This conversation is happening today. What what are we seeing more today? We're seeing more people speaking out about LGBT rights. We're seeing more people saying trans people exist in this and we they need to be empowered and they need to be supported by our government and these terms are reflective of the different struggles that are happening in our society because people are saying these experiences are not happening in isolation they are they are related to people's immigration status they are related to people's um racial status they are related to these different forms of identity and the fact that these categories are evolving and are transforming and are changing are reflective of the daily conversations that are happening in relation to the society and the systems that are imposing oftentimes the violence against these communities, the silence against these communities as well. You know, let's think about, for example, um, the, uh, the unfortunate Orlando shooting in 2016, where we lost 49 queer brown queer people. And, and, and I get chills and I get really upset because this was, Hulse was a nightclub where queer people go to be safe, where queer people go to be themselves, to not be judged by the outside world, to not be judged by the systems imposed on them. This was a space for them to be who they truly were, right? All identities, all complex experiences, this was a space for that. And it was invaded by a terroristic act, an act against the community. And 53 people were wounded, 49 killed, 50, including the, the perpetrator. And it was one of the biggest massacres that affected our community. And it wasn't just an individualistic act. It was reflective of the type of narratives that we have around our communities. The fact that we don't perceive these lives as worthy of protection. Right, so it's really allowing us to really sit, to put these experiences in the forefront and say, how are we going to organize and fight for these communities? How are we gonna organize and fight to make these spaces important, protected, right? So that this doesn't happen again. So that our government is accountable of these experience uh, of of protecting these people. And we can bring in, you know, um, the question about weapons, or you know, the question about you know legalizing weapons, or you know, the pers- the fact that this person was a brown person instead of what the assumed narrative was, but it wasn't a white person. But the fact that we're seeing a lot more of this systematically in this country, the fact that people are so invested in protecting their guns more than it is protecting its people, right? Um, those are the conversations that we need to have to complicate events like this, why they happen, why they continue to happen in this country, right? On to the next slide. So I guess in summarizing my, my presentation, I want you all to walk away with the, with the idea that terms are political. We cannot disregard the lived experiences that make these, that arise that make these terms, right? The lived experiences that really constantly redefine these terms. I want you also to think about, well, if the experiences are so complex, then what do we use if, you know, what's the collective or pan-ethnic terminology that we should use? We should feel okay with complication. We should feel okay with saying it's not clean cut. If we decide instead of labeling Hispanic Heritage Month, then what do we do? Do we do Latinx Heritage Month? Well, yeah, and create events or create conversations around the complexity of the term. You know, we don't have to have a clean cut definition. I think the fact that these definitions are constantly um, evolving and and redefining themselves to really speak to the historical moment of today is, is, is part of that process. But they also need to be in conversation with our past, with our historical past, with our relationship to the U.S. and the way the U.S. has a relationship with Latinos in the U.S., but also the relationships the U.S. has with Latinos in Latino America and the Caribbean, right? So in thinking about this, Terms establish cultural meanings, but they also can be political agendas. They can also be used for strategic organizing. We've seen that historically. The reason why Hispanic was imposed um, in the beginning under Nixon was because Chicanos and Puerto Ricans were organizing their own agendas, challenging US imperialism. And they said, hold up, this is a threat. We we don't want this. So let's figure out to bring these people together Let's challenge away these these militaristic agendas, these identity politics, and let's bring a term that's going to celebrate the community, right? Let's forget those let's forget those agendas, so we can celebrate something that's a little bit more palatable for us, right? So think about these different ways in which terminology operates right it's used from the top down it's also challenged and reproduced redefined by the bottom up it's used in political moments for strategic agendas right when there are certain events that we communities need to argue against or, or when there's certain injustices that communities need to respond agendas around creating common traits to organize a collective identity, we've seen that historically, we continue to see that today because they really illustrate a a moment of political potential, but that's not all we are. And we should continue to define ourselves in the ways that we choose, right? So defining yourself a Latina in one situation, defining yourself as a Chicana in another, defining yourself as an Afro Latina in another is very much part of the process of living in this country. And that in itself, should be the celebration. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Dr. Perez, for our enlightening um, this wonderful presentation on the role of ethnic terminology in the Latinx community. Um, definitely it brought light into defining these terms and how they cannot disregard our lived experiences and we are not all a cookie cutter, right? Color. And um, so if you have any questions for Dr. Gutierrez that you would like to um, make, please use the Q&A button and we will definitely address those questions. Okay, so we have some already. So here's the first one. Um, Says, can you address the debate over the name of Mecha and what your proposal?
2: That's a great that's a great um, question <laughs> and and the reason why there's been a lot of debate around Mecha is because it so Mecha has its historical roots in the civil rights era, right and and oftentimes with the Chicano movement indigeneity was used in many ways strategically it, it created a fictive narrative of these indigenous, Chicanos or, the, or the, the, these indigenous ancestral roots that were powerful, that were, you know, very in this kind of mystic way in order to challenge and create a collective identity that, um, that pushed, again, the agenda of Chicanos in the U.S. that were struggling with, you know, different forms of oppression, classism, racism, um, you know, incarceration and, you you know, access to education um, and so forth. So it very much was strategic and helpful in in creating a collective political identity of the time. The problem is that when you essentialize and romanticize this Indigenous experience, you really neglect the lived experiences of Indigenous people today, right? You're not speaking to those experiences. The fact that we continue to have Indigenous Mexicans living in the U.S. and living in the borders of our of Mexico and um, the different borders in in the U.S. and Mexico. The fact that we continue to have indigenous people um, in Mexico as well, right? So these, so it completely rejects that conversation, and and that is a problem. It also doesn't center the Afro um, Mexican experience, a very important experience in in the community, right? Um, because if you center those experiences, you really destabilize the agenda of the Chicano movement. Um, same with the Chicanas fighting for their rights and Chicanos being like, hold up, you know, that sexism thing, that's gonna take a, a, a foot back, right? Because we need to organize and focus on the race and classism right now. So it really challenges the narrative that is created by these um, these moments. I think that there is something to be recognized in these, in these Terms and these groups. Mecha continues to be an important community for asserting and protecting the rights of certain people of these communities. But I think that we should also push back and challenge these labels, these, um, these ways of defining themselves so that they are inclusive to the different experiences. So they speak to the moment, the historical moment of today. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say that, yeah, we need to push back and we need to demand more and ask to redefine because our experiences today are not the same as the 60s but we need to understand what the 60s was about so we can organize collectively and be smart about how we organize today.
1: I hope that answers. Thank you very much. We have a second question. And it reads as follows. I am a non-binary and I go by the pronoun they, them, but I don't know how to explain it to my Spanish-speaking grandparents. Do you have any advice?
2: That's a great question. And, and you know, one of the things that I I would tell you is that their experience and their understanding of language is going to be different from yours. They're not going to always understand your reality, but you need to be true to true to who you are and you don't need to apologize or accommodate for, for those interpretations or definitions. At the end of the day, what you say, they're going to interpret the way they want. Right. I would say, explain to the best way that you can explain how you see your identity and, um, and and be open to the uncomfortable conversation and also let them know that this conversation is uncomfortable because the way that you define yourself has never been part of the discourse before. So how is this conversation gonna be easy if it's never been part of the discourse, right? So I think you coming into that conversation, letting them know that it's a difficult conversation on both parties, right? But you are willing to stand in your truth and you're willing to not be apologetic about your truth is gonna leave you walking away from that conversation, feeling more empowered and at peace because you're speaking your truth and you're letting them know that we may not know exactly how to define this, but you're not apologizing for who you are. And maybe because they didn't have that terminology before doesn't mean that they can't learn new terminology today. Mm -hmm. Hope that helps.
1: Okay, thank you. And we have our next question. It says, what are your thoughts on the Asian Latinx community? Um,
2: in terms of coalition building or are you talking about the the way in which we have a huge growing um, Asian community in Latin America because Uh of the migration that has happened historically?
1: Right I want to say that Um, they didn't really clarify the question that was pretty much how it was set up. Yeah, I
2: mean, I think that's important, right? We, we, and, and, and maybe that's a mistake on my part as well that we continue to just even essentialize within just the Afro experience and the indigenous experience, but you're right. We have a history of different Asian communities migrating to the US, to to Mexico and to other Latin American countries and really creating and cultivating their lives there. Um, So many communities have also gone through Mexico and to cross to the US and they don't make it. So what happens? They create established enclaves in these communities as well. Um, so yes, we need to have those conversations. We need to continue to push and say our experiences are diverse. It's not just one or the other and it doesn't just look like a co- like you said Gladys a cookie cutter way of identifying. Um, which leaves the question then then how do we identify? Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the question, right? That's that's why I said in the, in the beginning of this presentation I'm not gonna give you an answer and I'm going to not gonna impose my views. I'm gonna let you know that this stuff is complex. The way I define myself in certain political contexts is very different um, than in other contexts, right? So I say, br- continue to bring it up. If you're organizing events, if you are in the class, if you are at different um, in the workforce, wherever it may be, if you know about this experience, bring it up make other people uncomfortable. That is part of the process of learning, being uncomfortable with not knowing everything, not knowing the entire thing. I'm not, I don't know the entire experience of this big ass continent and the Caribbean islands of of Latinos, right? And and I'm not here to say I'm I'm the expert at it, I'm not. But I am interested in learning more. I'm interested in wanting to explore more because our experiences are diverse and that's what makes us a beautiful people. And that is what should be celebrated, not in the multicultural consumable, you know, let's accept our differences way. But let's really talk about those differences in relation to structural inequality in relationship to our relationships to U.S. empire. Okay.
1: Very good. Thank you. So our next um, question says, compared to the U.S., how far along are Latino countries in terms of inclusiveness for the LGBT? LGBT communities and are they ahead, behind, or similar to the US?
2: That's a great, that's a great question. I think, you know, <laughs> I think that I don't know. I I feel like we're we're all in the same in the same way. I, I feel like we the US mm-hmm. we were doing we were doing good, not just in, and I'm not saying in um, legalizing gay marriage as the thing of like, yeah, we were, you know, we did it because it's really not. um, Legalizing gay marriage really was about supporting heteronormative agendas of unions. So that in itself was problematic because not everyone participates in these heteronormative relationships. Um, But I think what we start to see in the U.S. at least is that with this, with this president and, and its government, and we're seeing a lot of pushback against a lot of the organizing and the fight towards trans rights, LGBT rights, um, you know, gay and lesbian rights. We, we're starting to see a lot of pushback, but we're also starting to see a lot more visibility of these identities. These identities have always existed, but we are starting to see a lot more visibility and organizing in ways that we haven't seen before, we're starting to see a lot more dialogue also internationally. Mm -hmm. Um, For example, social media has been a great tool for people to organize across you know, national lines. Um, And I don't necessarily know if Latin America is ahead or, or behind, but I think the fact that they're having those conversations in the context in which they're having them, which is the context of their own country's history with those communities is an important conversation because the organizing might be Trans um transnational right the conversations might be transnational, but they also need to be rooted in the specific geopolitical history of those nations, mm-hmm. because those nations have created policy have created um, bureaucratic systems that have really forced people to live within the margins. In very specific ways to those countries. So I think those conversations need to be twofold. How are people having those conversations in their countries? And how are they also organizing and having our conversation transnationally? I don't know where, where they lie in terms of who's doing more or not. I think that it speaks to um, the complex nature of also oppression and, 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 and challenging these systems of power. Mm-hmm.
1: Thank you. Um, Our next question says, I am interested in the role of place and space naming practices. So for example, as I went to grad school in the US South, it was very, very rare to hear Chicano, Chicana. It was also relatively rare to hear Latino, Latina, Latinx. Most folks there self-identified as Hispanic. This was so different than growing up or visiting California. Any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, and, and, and here's the thing when um, it, it's really, it's it's all about geopolitical location. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I was in um, Grinnell for um, for undergrad, I would hear Hispanic all the time and I'm from LA. So for me, I'm like, ew, I don't, that's that's not my word. <laughs> so I was politically investing, invested in making it known that I was a Chicana, right? Specifically a Chicana. Um, but I think it's very much part of the geopolitical locations. There is a longer history of organizing in California. and, and, And I think it speaks to that. I think it speaks to that pushback of Hispanic, but imagine being in the South and hearing constantly from the government, from the media, from the novelas, from the TV channels, from advertising, the term Hispanic, Hispanic, you're gonna uh, you're gonna embrace that term because you're constantly hearing it in places like California. People were constantly hearing it, but then there's also that larger political organizing that's pushing against that, which I think it speaks to those debates. Um, but I, I I don't know. Um, I, I think what I would say in my experience being in spaces like that, um, I, I would just be actively saying um, pushing back against the term in my everyday life and saying, "Well, actually, I identify as a Chicana." Um, or or choosing Latina if if you're using a specific umbrella term.
1: Okay, well, good. Um, So our next question says, what are some initiatives, programs, or events that you have seen or have conducted that have proven to be successful in promoting inclusion in higher education? Whoa. (laughs) Um, So for me, um,
2: I think students have so much power you know, as, as administrative, speaking from the administrative side and also speaking from a faculty, an ex-faculty member from a college, um, you know, we, we we have some power um, in terms of wanting to bring certain political issues to the forefront, but our students ultimately, you know, our schools move when students say jump. you mm-hmm. know? Um, so I would say, if you want more of these conversations happening in your school, you need to demand them. You need to demand for these conversations to be part of your curriculum, to be part of the conversations that are um, campus-wide events, right? Like the Hispanic Heritage Month, right? It's not just a celebration of um, our community, which it should be, it should be part of that right? But we should also talk about the difficult, painful conversations. We should talk about who is excluded in this, in this community and how can we be better in terms of creating policy, um, that embraces on a campus level in our society, um, that really encompasses and reflects the diversity of our, of our experiences. And I think students have so much power in that. If they organize and collectively say to their school or to different, um, in different scenarios to say, we want to see more of this. How can we make that happen? Okay,
1: Okay, and then one last um, question to um, sort of culminate the event says, um, student says, I am very interested to hear more details about your work on Queer Achievement. Can I read or watch more from you somewhere? So (laughs) where can our students um, have access to that research or publication? Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, yeah, uh writing about cheese is fun. Um, <laughs> um, so I, I believe I gave Jorge my LinkedIn. Um I have some of my work um in the in that account. Um if you have specific questions for me, you can also email me. My email is Lizeth L-I-Z-E-T-H at Hillside H I L L S I D E S C dot Edu. Um I would love to even send you my work that way as well. Um, Yeah, I I think it's an important conversation. It's It's a conversation that I'm having with with Chicanas who are arguing that chisme is not just this frivolous, you know bad thing where you know everybody's like oh let's not even pay attention to this information let's dismiss it instead i'm saying look undocumented women who are working in the labor sector where there are a vulnerable population are using med to organize to mm-hmm. organize on uh, against the injustices of this economy right they're creating their own ways of challenging um wage theft of of challenging exploitation and so forth so I think that there's so much to be said about that, that concept and, and the queer critique of it is that it also creates an alternative space. And this is more of a um spatial space. The language itself creates an alternative space that challenges the rules of bonding. It really pushes against these heteronormative narratives of how people should relate to each other based on your sexuality, based on your race and class, and even based on your immigration status. So um, yes, email me and I'll definitely share some of my work as well. Thank
1: you. So, well, thank you once again, Dr. Gutierrez for this wonderful and enlightening presentation and just bringing about all these different terms, right? And and clarifying the meaning of these terms, not only as a trend, but rather as a cultural collective representation of who we are. So then I turn it over to Afaf, thank you very much. Thank you so much to Dr. Gutierrez and Dr. Gillum for
0: um, this very informative um, presentation. Um, and thank you all for being here. Uh, this concludes our event, but before we go, um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about the rest of, um, the events that we have planned for this month. Tonight, we have a, um, paint night, um, a Dia de los Muertos themed paint night. So if you've signed up beforehand, um, you should already have all of your, um, items to participate and hopefully we can do more of these in the future. We had such a great Um, response from you all. So thank you for that. Um, Our next event after that is next Wednesday on the 14th, we have Drag Queen Bingo with uh, Cynthia LeFontaine who was on uh, RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, She will be calling out Uh, bingo in English and in Spanish and be answering any questions that you'd like Um, and winners uh, will receive Amazon gift cards so um, if you're a student and you're interested um, join us for that all of these links are in our Instagram so if you go at CSUB Programming we have um, all of the links to our events and more information as well and then the last night of the month is SRC is doing a Kahoot Night on the 15th so if you'd like to see uh, the rest of the schedule you can head over to our page and once again this is has also been recorded um, and will be posted on the LFSA website if you would like to go back and um, review anything that was uh, talked about today or send it to anyone who wasn't able to make it Um, thank you thank you to everybody who has uh, been a part of this so have a good day